This is an Odyssey original. This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. You might need to get used to brown patches on your lawn, like lots of them. Unprecedented water restrictions are coming for about 6 million people across Southern California, all because of drought conditions. They'll be limited to outdoor watering once a week, as the Metropolitan Water District has a goal for all of us to cut water usage by 30%. We'll go in-depth into whether this is necessary and also if people are going to listen. Russia has been saying it could stop the gas flow to Europe. Now it is making good on that threat, shutting it off to Bulgaria and Poland, but are more European countries next. And the U.S. and Russia exchange prisoners, but that does not mean we are any closer to a peace deal in Ukraine. We'll talk again with a member of Ukraine's parliament who says Russia can be defeated, but more help is needed. Dr. Fauci sounding optimistic, basically saying the worst of the pandemic might be behind us. We'll look into whether we should all still be concerned about COVID. And the pandemic has made things even tougher for young adults, many of their parents still giving them uh, more money. Will it help them in the long run? We'll talk about that at the end of the show. But we start with water restrictions here in Southern California. With us is Assam Hege, scientist at the Viterbi School of Engineering at USC. He has studied water resources all over the world. Thank you for being with us. Uh, so this is a rather unprecedented uh, restriction that is going to be imposed on millions of Southern Californians. Do we need it? Yes, I think people need to realize that in the past three years, we've witnessed a drought condition that have never been seen in the history of our state. And these exceptional drought conditions require exceptional measures that the Metropolitan Water District of Southern California has implemented in their emergency water conservation program by asking people to to basically use water for, for outdoor only once a week, slashing the water use by 30%. So this measure is needed, and it's not exaggerated. It's actually, I believe, if this drought condition will continue, we will see even more drastic measures that will have to be made. How do you make people go along with it? Because there are going to be uh, homeowners out there who are not going to be willing to let the lawn go brown. And look, over the summer, with one day a week, they're all going to go brown. I think people should be concerned with how sustainable is their environment instead of being concerned of how entertaining it is. It's, it's these uh, English heritage backyards uh, they, uh, of having this loan, the green loan, it's not something that is sustainable in, uh, in Southern California. We are in a desert environment and our environment need to look and behave like one. So this heavy landscaping that we see in Southern California, that is a result uh, from uh, the real estate market, putting out there the image of an ideal home to look like an English backyard <laughs> from the 18th century is is a big problem. We should uh, appreciate our environment in the way it is and not the way we think it should be. But I also remember, and I'm sure you do as well, the last time we had some restrictions, not too long ago, uh, we had many homes, for example, in Bel Air, Beverly Hills area, where they simply refused to uh, cut back on their water. They felt a certain entitlement, I suppose, to water their lawns. There are office buildings that I know of, for example, that used to have at one point uh, lots of lush 
greenery. They pulled them out to put in more water, you know, friendly uh, uh, greenage, or I guess it was more mm-hmm. succulents, then only to take them out so that they would put back in the very plants <laughs> that needed to be watered. So it's very difficult to get people to go on board with this sort of thing, isn't it? I think so. I think people need to understand that in research have shown that the change in landscape lead to a change in water consumption. And there's a big impact of landscaping on water conservation. If your house is green, has a green lawn, you're surrounded by these trees that are not native of California, they are exported outside of the state and outside of, of Southern California, then you don't have, you don't feel that you are in a water shortage. Nature provides us this landscape, this desert landscape, to make us sensitive about water conservation. So it's very important to people to understand that we cannot have uh, um, what we call a water conservation program without a change in the landscape. Both have to go side by side, and we have to change the visual image of luxury house from that green uh, uh, the loan to something else. It could be, it doesn't have to be a yellow, doesn't have to be a, a rock yard, but it can be something that consume less water. And that's very important. Hassam Hege, scientist at the Viterbi School of Engineering at USC. He's looked at water resources all around the world. Russia is making good on threats to stop its natural gas supply to parts of Europe. It says it's cutting off the gas to Poland and Bulgaria. It's threatening to do so to more countries. What happens now to Poland and Bulgaria? Phil Flynn is an energy analyst, author of the Energy Report at the Price Futures Group in Chicago. Phil, thanks for coming back with us. So it's, uh, you know, we're on the cusp of summer, so I'm guessing that it's not going to be too dire of a situation in Poland or Bulgaria. But what about the wintertime and what about other countries? I think it's it's a warning shot that things could get a lot worse. I mean, currently right now, if you're looking at the situation, both Poland and Bulgaria, you know, can replace those fuels, but the rest of Europe cannot. Uh, if they decided to cut off supplies to uh, Germany and the rest of Europe, uh, then those supplies just could not be uh, replaced. And, and that's already having an impact here in the United States. We saw the cost of fuels like diesel fuels hit an all-time record high because of this, because of the fear of this. And this is causing a situation where um, we're going to see it at, the, at, at our own gas pump, uh, and, and it could get worse before it gets better. So for now, at least the other companies there have enough to, to move stuff around and, and prop these two up. But past that, if, if another domino falls, then, then it's a different ballgame. Yeah, absolutely. And this is the thing. If you cut off supplies of natural gas, Europe has to use other fuels to keep the lights on, right? And if they can't use natural gas, um, they can't build a nuclear power plant overnight. So they're going to have to use dirtier burning fuels like coal and oil. And the problem is, is that the supplies of coal and oil are below normal for this time of year. And because Russia is an exporter of diesel fuel as well, this is creating a kind of a seismic situation in the energy markets that are causing prices to go to an all-time high. And uh, I guess another problem is that it's not like the U.S. is going to come to the rescue with large amounts of oil, because I was just reading the other day that the oil companies here are not really pumping out any more. 
I exactly. I mean, right now, the U.S. energy companies have been struggling to raise production and they've faced a very tough regulatory environment where they can't raise production right now. So this is a situation that becomes more difficult uh, uh, for the U.S. Now, uh, the Biden administration saying that the U.S. is going to do whatever they can to help ease the situation. They promise more natural gas supplies. Uh, but yet at the same time, they um, haven't really gone to the U.S. energy producers and worked with them to bring on more production. You know, in fact, they've done the opposite. They've kind of put on more regulations, blame them for, you know, when things go wrong uh, and, and saying it's their greed is the reason why they're not picking up more supply. Every time something like this happens, they say, you know what, we have to speed up going green and, and we probably do. But it still is also a reminder that no matter how fast people want to be there, we're nowhere near that yet. Well, you know, and that's the problem, you know, a lot of, you know, I heard some people like from the International Energy Agency saying the problem is that we haven't gone to green fuels fast enough. And I would argue it's the opposite. It's because we move too fast away from fossil fuels. And that's the problem in Europe. Vladimir Putin's a smart guy. He's been planning this for years. And he knew that the green energy transition in Europe uh, you know, was an opportunity for him to get a stranglehold over Europe. And now you see what he's doing with it, right? He's holding the entire continent hostage uh, to either assess to his desires or, or, or freeze or have your lights turn out or have your economy shut down. So this, this is one of the misreadings of this entire situation. You know, listen, the green energy transition, you know, that's a great thing, but you got to base it in reality. And I think we're getting a reality check right now in Russia and the Ukraine. Phil Flynn, energy analyst, author of the Energy Reports at the Price Futures Group. Coming up, we'll talk to a member of Ukraine's parliament to get her perspective on the war and what it will take for her country to defeat Russia. And the pandemic, forcing many parents to give their adult kids even more money. Right now, relations have been as icy between the U.S. and Russia as they've been since the Cold War. But the two sides, they worked out a deal to exchange prisoners. U.S. gets back Marine veteran Trevor Reed, who was arrested in Russia in 2019. Russia gets back a drug trafficker who was in prison in Connecticut. Miatek Bodashinsky, professor of U.S. foreign policy at Pomona College, former State Department diplomat in Albania and Kosovo with us. Uh, thank you. So do we read into this as a good sign overall, or do these exchanges just happen when they happen, when you come to an agreement with someone who you're willing to give to, to get who you want? Yeah. Hi. Thanks for having me. I, I mean, I guess it's, you know, it's a confidence building measure um, to some extent. It's also a sign that the U.S. and uh, Russia still have uh, diplomatic channels to each other, which is important. It's, it's always good to have the channels. I'm not sure, you know, beyond that, whether it does very much. I mean, it's certainly good politically for, for President Biden and certainly good for, for Mr. Reid's family. Yeah, I was going to say, and you know, I guess there are always expectations that when you have this sort of a breakthrough, and I'm putting that word in quotation marks, that maybe it signals uh, an easing of tensions between the two countries. But uh, historically, this has happened even during the Cold War, right? Even at the coldest yeah. points of the Cold War, we had these exchanges and it didn't do anything uh, at the time to lessen the tensions, right? That's right. It, you're, you're absolutely right. There's a, there's a history of this, you know, going back to the Cold War. And then after the Cold War, I think the last time we exchanged prisoners with Russia was in 2010 in Vienna. One of the, the, the people exchanged was Sergei Skripal, who later was poisoned in the U.K., allegedly by, by Russian agents. 
Um, but I do think that, you know, it's it, all countries, and, and they all told me this when I was a, as a diplomat, is your first responsibility is to protect your own citizens. So for us, it was to protect American citizens, and that includes getting Americans out of jail or wrongly imprisoned or in some sort of detention, especially in authoritarian countries. Um, and I think that's probably the same, the same is true for Russia. And so there's a reciprocity here, right? There's a mutual agreement that this is in the two countries' interest. Um, but again, I don't necessarily think it, 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 it's a sign of a broader breakthrough, not at this moment. Does it give more hope for some of the other cases? Uh, I mean, Brittany Griner is, is still detained. And then uh, Paul Whelan, right? That was years ago, espionage charges. Yeah. He said, I'm not a spy. And he's still in like a, a sweatshop. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, not clear. I, I would, I would hope so. You know, I don't know enough about those cases. I don't think any of us do. But, but all signs are that those are based on Trump, trumped-up charges, uh, as well. So I, I would hope that that uh, you know that this will continue. And it, I guess it's a you know matter of who we're willing to uh, to exchange. Um, this wasn't a very even exchange if you read into the, the Russian guy who was sent there. You, you know, w- one of the things I think uh, that some people do wonder about is this country says that we don't, for example, uh, we don't negotiate with terrorists. We don't pay r- ransom money. Right. But if there's a quid pro quo, you release somebody, we release somebody. Isn't that kind of the same thing? I mean, I think paying a ransom is different. And I don't think we do pay ransoms. I know some other gov- governments do. Um, but yeah, there's a political, there's a political diplomatic uh, piece to this, um, a strategic piece, and, and so you're right about that. Typical in the length, I mean, 2019 for for Trevor Reed, so years to to get this done. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I I don't know how much the moment mattered and how much you know progress was was made in the past, um, but uh, but yeah, these things uh, sometimes sometimes take take years and, of course, you know, cause great agony to, to loved ones. Miatek Bodoshinsky there, professor of uh, U.S. foreign policy, Pomona College, former State Department diplomat. You're listening to KNX In-Depth with Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. War in Ukraine continues. The country looking for more help, additional resources to fight Russia. So far, Russia's uh, failed to take over Kiev, the capital, now focusing more on the southern and eastern parts of Ukraine. So with us again is Kara Rudik, a member of Ukraine's parliament. She has ties to the Bay Area, by the way, was a former chief operating officer of Ring. Kara, thanks for being back with us. Where do things stand for your country at this moment? So today is day 63. And if we are talking about the war in uh, three dimensions, first is uh, what's happening uh, on the ground. Second, how the international support looking. And third, like what's going to happen. Let's start with point one. Uh, We um we push them away from uh, Kiev, from outskirts of Kiev. However, the attacks on all our cities continue. So it's basically nowhere in Ukraine you can feel safe because even the most western parts of the country, even the borders with Poland are being attacked. We are actively fighting on the east of the country and it's basically where it's army to army which is very unusual to russians uh, because they um, uh, because they used to fight civilians the worst place in ukraine right now is the siege city of mariupol 
where um, about 100,000 people are being trapped and there is no way to get them out. Uh, different leaders of different countries tried to talk to Putin and uh, get him to allow humanitarian convoys to get out of the city. But every time these negotiations either failed on the time of negotiations or they failed at the time of uh, execution. Basically, Russians cannot stop firing. And right now, the general secretary of the United Nations is coming to Kiev. He promised that he will talk to Putin about uh, getting people out. However, I don't think that it's moving anywhere. I do not believe that the humanitarian convoy would happen. In terms of international support, so we see that countries are, they started to actually um, increase their support uh, in terms of weapons and in terms of sanctions. In terms of weapons, we finally are getting uh, what we need. It's still slow, but it's heavy weaponry. And recently on their uh, base, uh, which is called Rammstein in Germany, it's uh, uh, the air base of the United States. Uh, recently, there was a meeting of 40 ministers of defense of 40 countries who are supporting Ukraine, and they made the decision to provide us with more and more weapons because it's basically what we need. The weapons to fight Russians, we are fighting very well, but we need the means every single day. Let me stop you there because because here's uh, a, a sort of a, a, the other side of the coin, which is that your country is getting more support. You're, you're quite right from other countries. You're getting more heavy equipment. The Russians, of course, are stepping up their tactics. For example, they've now cut off, as I'm sure you know, gas supplies to two NATO countries. So they're kind of upping the ante. Are you concerned that as the Russians do then perhaps expand that economic strategy, that the cohesiveness of the Western allies may start tearing? Um, no, I'm not concerned about that. Uh, you see, Russia was always acting like that uh, in terms of uh, the pressure, in uh, economic pressure, and was using energy as a weapon. It was an illusion to hope that they will continue playing fair. And since last year, we were telling countries that were severely dependent on Russian gas and oil that it's uh, dangerous for their countries, for their people, not even in terms of support or not supporting Ukraine. It's just a matter of uh, Putin using it, uh, using the trade um, connections for gaining more and more political weight in the world. So right now, Germany, France, Italy, and other countries, they need to jump off this uh, needle of Russian gas and oil for their own sake. Because no matter how the world ends, though I believe that we will win, uh, in five months there will be a heating season in Europe. And I can tell you 100% that Putin either will, will stop uh, supplying the gas even to those countries who paid for it, or he will ramp up the prices, or he will change the rules to say pay us in rubles or whatever. So, and there, there is again no way to push him to execute on his uh, uh, promises or on, um, on the agreements that he made. What else are in the Russian plans? We've seen movement on, on one of these sham referendums in an area that they occupy. Well, this one is uh, really dangerous because this means that, uh, except of military, they started the political 
political approach and they are trying to add uh, the Kherson city to their conquered territories where they would you know start really operating as as it is theirs not just a territory where it is war and uh, this would basically mean that um, we will get off all the negotiations uh, peaceful negotiations or potential agreements that we are right now and uh, that would uh, have to make United States and United Kingdom act faster because uh, this is like the actual takeover. As I'm sure you know, historically, most wars uh, do end with some sort of negotiation. Do you have in your mind a uh, an end, an outcome where uh, Ukrainians get pretty much what, what Ukrainians want, but the Russians end up walking away with something that makes them at least somewhat satisfied or that Putin can sell if he needs to sell to his people that it was a victory on the Russian side. Is there some formula that works? Unfortunately, no, uh, for two reasons. First one is that the question would be always the territories that were previously occupied by Russia. Uh, Donetsk and Luhansk, and if they have this uh, shown referendum, then it will add this to the question. So we cannot give up our territories, and Russia cannot give up what they think is or what they are selling inside of these, their territories. And second is step zero, which means uh, security guarantees or like, any kind of guarantees that Putin will keep his word. You see right now the countries like Turkey, uh, United States, United Kingdom, Italy, Germany, they cannot even make sure that Putin executes on the international agreements uh, uh, for gas supply. How can we all make sure that he will execute on uh, on the peace treaty? So, so no all right, but, but so then in... I want to be clear on this. In your mind, then, does this end, is the only way for this conflict to end is with one side being the absolute clear winner and the other side the absolute clear loser? Uh, I think uh, what we are all striving to is uh, Russia to collapse into smaller states, like, like the Soviet Union collapsed. This is the only solution that, uh, that is feasible right now. There was controversy when our Secretary of Defense said the outcome should be a weakened Russia so they don't try this again. I imagine that's exactly what you're looking for, because especially for that last part, so they don't try this again. Because if you leave them in the same place, they're just going to come back however many years later. Absolutely. Like If we look at it from like a broader perspective, they still have everything they need to be able to produce more and more weapons. They have... Uh, over 140 uh, million people, so they can like, spare a million easily. And uh, this is like one of the generals. This is what they said that they can like we can we can have a million people who who can die in in your country. So uh, without any like systemic approach, uh, the war would continue, and there would be always a threat. If the world's goal to remove threat of Russia for foreseeable future, it needs to be 
the disassembling of the state, the weakening it, whatever you can call it different ways. Otherwise, uh, the wars would, would continue. Otherwise, there will be always a nuclear threat. Otherwise, it will be always a threat of uh, something like what's happening in Ukraine, something like this war to continue and be repeated elsewhere. Well, what when, when you say disassembling of the Russian state, what in your mind does that actually look like? I mean, for example, does that include regime change? Does it mean that Putin has to be out? It does not necessarily mean that Putin should be out. Uh, like, remember, like, Soviet Union collapsed. Uh, it uh, uh, collapsed pretty peacefully. And uh, the new country states, where Ukraine actually was one of them, um, just uh, defined on their own strategies and on, on their own sovereignty. This needs to happen with Russia. And uh, I know that uh, there is a preliminary understanding of how the new uh, new countries, a new structure would look like. It will require some time because right now they didn't feel the uh, strength of the sanctions just yet. It would need like, I think, at least half of a year. And this is terrifying because for during this half of a year, my people will have to fight and will be dying and will be using the weapons that we will be getting uh, so win, to win every single day so Russia would uh, collapse. I want to come back to what you were saying about the international response and, and your feelings on it. And yes, more of the weapons are coming through and you need them. But I think when we talked last time, you said something along the lines of, you know, what is the U.N. for if it can't just provide even simple things like ways out for civilians or that it can't stop Russia in some way from doing something like this? That's why it was built. Correct. And I still stand on this. So uh, General Secretary of United Nations, he came into Turkey first to talk to President Erdogan. Then he went to talk to Putin. And and right away, there were uh, different statements from him and from Putin's press secretary. So uh, I all, already can see that it will end up with nothing. And now he's coming to Ukraine, probably to see all the atrocities and then say, oh, this is not what Putin told me. So, uh, again, we have seen during the last two months that the organizations, as they are, they are slow and they are good for nothing. Uh, and the only good way is to talk directly to the countries. So, we, all the help and support we are getting from the countries that are our allies, not the organizations that turn to be our allies. And I still stand on my point that UN is good for nothing because in 63 days, they didn't find a way to expel Russia. And what else needs to happen for this decision to be made? Uh, right now, there is no driver there. Uh, right now, there is no, uh, not even, um, you know, initiative to expel Russia. They are all hiding their, um, their heads in the sand, uh, hoping that the situation will resolve itself. Kira, thank you again for speaking to us. Thank you. Thank you. Glory to Ukraine. Kira Rudik there, member of Ukraine's uh, parliament. This is KNX In-Depth. He's Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. Is the worst of the pandemic actually behind us? Dr. Fauci says the U.S. is out of the full-blown explosive pandemic phase. But he's not saying the pandemic is over yet, certainly not in the rest of the world. Just uh, that the virus isn't causing any major spikes in deaths and the number of people in the hospital. So what does this all mean as we all try to move forward? With us now again is Dr. Arthur Kaplan. He's the founding head 
of the Division of Medical Ethics at NYU's School of Medicine. Doctor, thanks for being back uh, with us. I guess we didn't scare you away yet, huh? <laughs> Not quite yet. <laughs> okay. So, we'll try again. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll keep trying, yeah. Uh, so, you know, the early headlines this morning uh, said, you know, Fauci says pandemic over, but then when you get beyond the headline, that's really not what he's saying, right? Right. You know, pandemic means, is it worldwide? That's really what you use the term for. And given what's going on in China with these giant lockdowns, uh, many uh, people uh, terrified that there's going to be a huge outbreak there and still the virus rattling around in other places, I wouldn't say the pandemic is over. It is the case that it's starting to tamp down or wane a bit here that I would concede, and he's right about that. But uh, the, the general idea that the pandemic worldwide ended, no, I don't agree with that. So the transition phase, let's talk about this portion of it, because we are in a different spot than we were, right, especially with Omicron. Yes, we have cases that are going up and and maybe we're going to see upticks, but the hospitalizations and the deaths have not followed like they did with the other variants. Right. And that's partly due to uh, fairly good vaccination. It's partly due to the fact that 60% of Americans have had COVID, so there's some immunity out there, and that's tipping things down. And the variant itself, this Omicron mutation, doesn't seem to be as nasty as the original COVID virus was. So what's really dipping, and I think what Fauci was reaching for, was to say, look, there are not as many people going to the hospital. There's not as many people happily going to graveyards. And we've got one other tool. We have these new antiviral medicines, which if you get tested and they get administered quickly, that's what's happening to Vice President Harris right now, uh, they seem to be able to keep you relatively healthy. Okay, so uh, let's talk for a second about the antivirals, because we've talked about it on the show the past week or two, Uh because I I ended up having to get them uh, two weeks ago. And it wasn't that easy. I mean, it took a while, and I had to do some, you know, investigative stuff on my computer to track down a local yeah. pharmacy in Los Angeles that that had it. I suspect that the vice president found it much easier to get uh, the meds, probably hand-delivered uh, to her <laughs> residence. So uh, are we making progress in this country getting these medicines available on a quicker basis, especially when you have to get tested first and some people don't have easy access to testing. It's not that simple. It's not that simple. And I don't think the Biden administration gets big uh, high marks for getting testing out there easily. And by the way, I think you need a pretty sophisticated test, so-called antigen or PCR, not just the home test kit, to make sure you really are infected. That ought to be easier to get, more widespread. We ought to be educating people and their doctors to say, if you think there are symptoms, get a test because you got to take that antiviral set of pills, as you know, within five days. If you wait longer, it doesn't work very well. The virus gets out of control. It isn't clear to many people how to get the pills. You know, can you just pick them up at the pharmacy? Do you need a prescription? Am I going to have to pay? Do I have a copay? It's a good tool to have. It really is a a wonderful breakthrough we haven't pushed it out to the american people the way we should it's just you know as you said you got to go on the computer and you're hunting around 
a lot of people aren't going to do that or don't have the capacity to do that. How do you feel about what you... Or they're not the vice president. Right. They can't (laughs) get it uh, in an hour. Uh, How do you feel about what you see when you're out in the world? I mean, restaurants are full. Planes are full. Not a lot of masks. I mean, some yes, but not a lot. Um, Because, look, there are a bunch of people who are just done with this, and they're probably just ignoring it altogether. Oh, it's over, according to me. There's others who avoided it so far, and then they're looking at everybody else going, are you off your rocker? I don't want to catch this thing. I'm worried about Mm -hmm. long COVID. There's so much we don't know yet. What's wrong with everyone? Well, I think part of the problem is if Fauci says pandemic is on the wane, people are like, throw away the mask, let's go, let's uh, go back to normal. But that isn't true for a lot of Americans. Millions are still immunosuppressed. Millions are vulnerable because of just plain old age and weakened immune systems. So I don't think I'd want to be going on an airplane or an airport still or a train station without masking. Not just because I might be at risk, but I want to try and protect these vulnerable people also kids under five who couldn't get uh, vaccinations. Um, we have to look out for our neighbors. So anything that's a theater, anything that's an indoor mass gathering, I'd still say mask up and don't go there if you have symptoms. Okay, we have, uh, I think, time to uh, get rid of one more myth. Going back to that uh, figure that Mike mentioned earlier, about roughly 60%, they think, mm-hmm. probably more uh, Americans have had COVID right. because our testing, let's face it, is not exactly world class. Yeah. Uh, but I'm already hearing people saying, oh, well, uh, if most of us have gotten it, then we don't need to get vaccinated. We don't need to worry about it anymore. It's over and done with. And that also is not true, right? Not true. New variants can still pop up when the rest of the rest of the world still is seeing some pretty high rates. That's a place for things to mutate. Remember that a lot of states in the South where vaccination was lousy, people may have gotten infected, but you're always trying to protect with vaccine against the next thing. So you still want to get vaccinated. And I wish Fauci would have said, and I think you're going to have to get a vaccination every year. It's going to be like the flu. That's going to be the smart thing to do, not because the current virus is causing so much havoc, but you're trying to make sure you're protected against the next one. Dr. Arthur Kaplan, founding head of the Division of Medical Ethics, NYU's School of Medicine. You know, it turns out that one of the best kind of ATMs to have is mommy and daddy. <laughs> yes, please. <laughs> yeah. I need some more. Yeah, because young adults these days, they seem to be, uh, be relying more on mom and dad than past generations. A recent survey from Savings.com found half of parents in the country with an adult child still provide them with some type of financial support. More than a quarter say the amount's increased since the start of the pandemic. Average parents spending about $1,000 a month to help their adults' kids. Anna Manzoni, sociology professor, North Carolina State University, did a study a few years ago that found young people who get support from their parents have greater professional success. Uh, Anna, thanks for being with us. So these numbers uh, surprising or do they seem about right to you? Yeah, I'm not surprised, definitely not surprised, uh, given the current situation and the difficulties of young adults, both in the labor market and with the rising cost of education um, and the lack of a welfare system in the U.S., we can definitely expect that. Well, has this sort of thing happened before in, in this country or is this sort of unprecedented? Um, definitely, there has been a rise in uh, the reliance of young adults on their parents. It's not specifically uh, just in the years of COVID. It has been a trend in the past few years, even decades, I would say. Uh, I think it has been associated uh, highly with uh, 
more job market uh, situation and uh, floundering, you know, young adults like not having stable jobs as well as uh, massive cost of education. Yeah. And increasing need to get a college degree uh, associated with enormous cost. Do, do you split it up into different kind of categories that, that you usually see? I mean, there's the, the boomerang kids, right, that go back and live with mom and dad. That's support because maybe they're not charging you rent. Or if you live it on your own and you can't make rent, then maybe they're giving you cash. Or we probably all know somebody that's still getting, like, insurance paid or cell phone bills for years and years and years. That adds up, too. Absolutely, absolutely. I think, uh, as you correctly said, uh, there could be like some sort of uh, help provided through residential arrangements, which indirectly uh, saves you money. Um, and then there could be direct transfer, financial transfer, and there could be more instrumental support than like paying for certain costs, like health insurance up to a certain age, or uh, other sort of support, like taking care of other costs, like paying for your college tuition or things like that. The, the great divide is also that parents from different social classes not only are differently able to support their kids, but also uh, they might su- provide support in different forms, which then increases the gap. Because obviously you can think that support provided through co-residence would force young adults to stay in a particular geographical area, for example, um, rather than providing financial you know, transfers through cash assist. I mean, in many ways, uh, is it not the case that this is, is the only reason why people are kind of maybe shocked if they're shocked by, by this is because it's happening now more with middle-class people. But I mean, throughout history, very wealthy families have always done that, right? I mean, that's how right. great wealth has accumulated through the decades, in some cases, through the centuries. If you go to, to some parts of uh, Western Europe or the UK, where one family has money and then they pass it on to the to the kids and they pass it on to their kids and on and on and on and on it goes. Yes, yes, exactly. I do think that we have to be very careful in like kind of like blaming somehow young adults these days because definitely there are this is not absolutely new like parents have traditionally supported their children and also this sort of report that we have been mentioning now today doesn't account for actually the reciprocity uh, in transfers because young adults are also supporting their parents more later on so there is also this implicit contract across generations that it becoming more and more important as young adults will have to support their parents for longer. Yeah, when um, we're not talking that the super wealthy group, if we're more, you know, you're on a fixed income because you just retired, or you know, you're you're trying to 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 still scrape by in the in the, the last few years before retirement. I mean, how much of a burden is on some of these parents if if they're having to to shell over to help the kids every month too? Yeah, that is true. Yes, we definitely saw in this report that uh, parents, but parents are willing to do that, right? That was also the report was saying, even if you're not helping now, you're willing to possibly help. And this might be also for, you know, the idea that the young adults will at some point when they can pay that back in terms of like, you know, supporting your parents when they get older and they... That could be financially or it could be 
through other forms of support, right? Well, you just, you just raised a very interesting uh, question here. When parents give this money or financial support to their children, is there an expected quid pro quo? Do the parents expect to have it paid back in some way? I believe that, you know, all the literature we know about intergenerational contracts assume some sort of reciprocity and exchanges, right? Every, every generation acts for their own utility, but there is also an altruistic drive in helping your kids. And there is an expectation that you will be paid back in case of need, right? There is a social contract across generations. So I, while that is not written explicitly, I think that's the assumption. Pay their parents back, kids. Anna Manzoni, sociology professor, North Carolina State University. That's in-depth for today. Back tomorrow.